Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Today, we proudly bring you Dana Santis, aka the Mobility Maker. She is a breathing, mobility, and mind body coach in professional sports and beyond. She is teaching some of the most fundamental components of performance to some of the world's most elite performers and seeing incredible results. She trains athletes from professional baseball, hockey, basketball, football, soccer, golf, tennis, and even the WWE. She has also proudly worked with US military and veterans and spent time as a yoga instructor with both CNN Health and the Boston Fire Department. So her range of experience and clientele is vast. Her level of understanding is deep and the results she achieves are unquestionable. I think today's message is an important one. Come back to the basics, slow it down, breathe right, and address the fundamentals before taking the leap to high order performance. Please enjoy our conversation with Dana Santis. To find out more about the Good Athlete Project, find us on social media at coach, the number four, kindness. That's coach for kindness or at goodathleteproject.com. The player and who actually is still my all-time favorite athlete was Tim Thomas, the goaltender from the Boston Bruins. And I, I started working with him in either 2004 or 2005. And I stayed with him throughout his entire career. He ended with the Dallas Stars, but I stayed predominantly with the Bruins. Um, they won the Stanley Cup. He won the Conn Smythe. Um, he was on two all-star teams while I worked with him and, um, and went to the Olympics. I went to the um, NHL awards with him and his family. It was really cool. I, his wife, Melissa, is wonderful. And so I got to know them. And, yeah, that was that was neat. I was in the, the special commemorative sports illustrated issue for the Stanley Cup because wow. uh, of my work with him. So it was, that was kind of like a wild ride. I absolutely love, love what I do. And, and, and I, you know, I marketed once and I've told that story a whole bunch about how I market and it kind of ties into some of these questions that you've given me. And so I think I'll get into that a little bit later, but I marketed once. And then after that, I just did the best job that I could um, and was constantly learning and I never really had to market again because what people don't realize is, you know, in sports and even across sports, we're a family to a certain respect, you know, and as long as you always do the right thing and you're not burning bridges mm-hmm. and you basically don't act like an, I didn't ask a jerk. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, yes, yes. don't. Don't act like an asshole. Yeah. You, um, in professional sports, you can go a long way. That brings us back to now. And now I want to know more about what now looks like. So like you arrive at practice or is it uh, preempting a strength session or like, like how exactly do you interact with the group? Do you do a pre-analysis or does everyone have a similar protocol or what does a day look like with a team? Um, it depends on, on what team it is. So my answer, usually people are like, are you coming in before? Are you on off days? Are you, and the answer is yes, 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 yes. It really depends. Um, and at this point in my career, having to kind of figure out where I would fit into different programs where they wanted me. And now, you know, as, as coaching staff expands and now you have high performance models and you have all of these mental performance coaches and you have massage therapists on staff and you have physical therapists and it's just more people that I can learn from and then integrate my services into. So it really 
it really depends on the, the circumstance. But mm-hmm. for example, today I'm at the Blue Jays and I, I come in on today's Wednesday. Right? I, all the days in, you know, in professional sports, there really aren't days off so that right. all the days kind of go together. But um, Wednesday does tend to be the rehab and recovery day. And so I come here and I see rehabbing players mm-hmm. on Wednesdays. So it is way more focused on recovery, but I have to be, um, I have to be creative in what I do with them when I see them as a group, because in this instance, I see them as a group. It's a small group, but I've got, you know, a hamstring issue, a knee issue, a shoulder issue. I might as well have them just put a body with no limbs out down on a mat and say, Hey, do something with them. Yeah. Uh, the good, the good news is that I'm, I'm really trained in breathing biomechanics. Um, and that's the, the foundation of, of the work that I do. So we can, we're always breathing, right? And they're rehabbing, they're not dead. So we can breathe and yeah. we can work on that as a movement pattern yeah. um, that then impacts everything else. So the idea is have them work with me while they're rehabbing so that the end result is they're even better than they before the injury, you know, that they've worked, they've had this opportunity now to work on optimizing everything. And why not start with the thing that influences everything like your breathing. So absolutely. That's it. What, what yeah. a cool thing. I love that line breathing as like a movement pattern that, that, that is so, because it's so automatic, uh, <clears throat> kind of floats underneath our consciousness almost always. Um, if you wouldn't mind digging into that just a little bit, maybe there's some takeaways or, or, or perhaps what are some of the most concerning issues you see on the front end? Like what, what are we doing wrong? What's, what's faulty about our current movement patterns more often than not? Um, well, from a breathing standpoint, yeah. I, 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 most people at some point in their life develop a compensatory breathing pattern because obviously we all have to breathe. Um, and it, whether it's because of chronic stress it's a posture issue, it's a repetitive movement issue, it's an injury, an illness, something throws off our pattern. And especially in athletes, they're the they're great compensators, right? Because they have to figure out a way to move yeah. and to move the best way that they can, regardless of whatever they have going on. Right. Well, so breathing is clearly um, most important. It's paramount to everything, right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to figure out a strategy and we're going to make it work. Unfortunately, you know, when something goes wrong and we've got a movement pattern that we need to fix that's clear, like in our gait or, um, you know, a, a pitching mechanics issue or whatever, we'll, we'll work on cleaning that movement pattern up. Um, and maybe like in, in the PTs are really good at looking at, okay, someone injured their knee, but now they're starting to compensate and develop a hip problem. So let's make sure we clean that up. But we don't always look at the breathing. So whether so when the breathing becomes a compensatory pattern, we now take that as our regular pattern. But the problem with that is, as we all know, muscles work in chains. If if you have a compensatory pattern that now creates a dysfunctional diaphragm, and let me just explain a little bit about the typical pattern is chest oriented breathing all the time. Now, chest oriented breathing is an adaptation that's necessary in sports that our body is designed to be able to do a little less with the diaphragm and a little more with breathing up here so that you can breathe quicker, but it's not supposed to be your all the time pattern. It's an adaptation, um, but then you come back to neutral. Neutral should be true diaphragmatic breathing with rib mobilization, which is something that most people miss out on, especially if your posture is poor. And um, how many guys do you see that are locked in a 
anterior pelvic tilt, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the ribs, the ribs and the pelvis work in sync. And I know nobody who's listening can see this, but I want you guys to kind of get the visual. So if I have an, if I have an anterior pelvic tilt, as soon as I do that, what happens to my ribs? So I can't, I can't keep my ribs, my lower ribs down and keep them from flaring and still stick my butt out. Right. You can't do it because ribs, because we're, we're skeletons that where our bones are all connected and everything works together. Right. Um, so, so if you get stuck in this anterior pelvic tilt and then your ribs stick out, right? Now, most people don't understand how the diaphragm is designed to function, but it's really not that complex. And I don't know why we aren't learning this in school. And I'm a big proponent of we need to start teaching kids how to breathe mm-hmm. um, it, from an early age because that's the first thing an athlete says to me once they get this and they start to feel the profound impact that it has on their movement, their physiology, their mental state, they say, oh, my God, why didn't anyone teach me this sooner? Yeah. And, you know, it's a big face pump. I don't know why no one taught you that sooner. Yeah. Instead, we're hearing, we're hearing about belly breathing, which is well-intentioned but completely wrong, and I'm going to explain to you why. Oh, like so, the, yeah, no, belly breathing makes me crazy. Um, it, it's wrong. We have no lung tissue there, and when you focus on the belly, you can force the diaphragm contraction, but you don't mobilize the ribs. So it's not a pattern that your body's then going to say, oh, yeah, this is right and functional and I'll keep doing it. So you can do it in a yoga class. You can do it on a mat. You can make it happen while you consciously think about it. But your body is not going to take that pattern and then run with it. It just doesn't work that way. So let's go back to the rib cage. So you've got um, this infrasternal angle where your ribs split in the front. And most people know that their diaphragm attaches there. Your diaphragm also then attaches to your lumbar spine. Um, and where it attaches to your lumbar spine, just to get back to that anterior pelvic tilt, because I want people to start to connect this, your um, diaphragm and your psoas are so interconnected at that attachment to your lumbar spine that they can't dissect them in cadavers. Hmm. So think about this, when your diaphragm is dysfunctional and it's, it's kept in a semi-contracted state, and I'll explain why that happens, but it's, it's tight, and if it's tight, especially at its attachment to the lumbar spine, and there it is with the psoas, what else is tight, right? So a lot of times this hip flexor tension is very much tied, just like we saw with the pelvic anterior Mm -hmm. tilt, hip flexor tension, diaphragm, rib cage. It's all tied together. So if you start working on stretching out hip flexors and you're not working on breathing and diaphragm function, you're missing this massive component. And we take up to 24,000 breaths a day. That's more than any other controllable movement pattern other than blinking. So what's always going to win? You could stretch your hip flexors out six hours a day, but if your breathing sucks and your diaphragm is tense, it's going to win because it's going 24 hours, Hmm. right? So anyway, back to the diaphragm. When When your diaphragm relaxes, that's a, it, it's in this domed state, and most people know that. But what they don't realize is that it needs the space to create that dome. If your ribs stay in a flared position and that infrasternal angle is wide, then your diaphragm is being pulled into a contraction and it's being held in a contracted state. There, it cannot. You can't get all of the air out of your lungs, and it cannot relax. Hmm. In order for your diaphragm to dome, 
those ribs need to internally rotate and there needs to be a narrowing of that infrasternal angle to create the space for the diaphragm to dome. Hmm. And I know it's a lot to be throwing out at you, but it's really not as complex. It's just new to hear it, right, if you yeah. haven't before. But that's why whenever I train breathing, I say, not your belly, but you put your hands on your ribs so that your fingertips are right at the edge of that infrasternal angle so you can feel it. Mm -hmm. And then you always start with an exhale. Everybody always thinks they need to inhale before they exhale. And it's hilarious because you've still got air in there because especially if your ribs are stuck in this flared state, do you exhale and you bring your ribs in. And as much as your diaphragm is getting to relax, your whole core shouldn't be. You should feel your core turn on as you bring those ribs in. Mm -hmm. And if you get all the air out, so you blow all the air out, all of it, all of it, all of it. Then when you inhale, you'll feel your diaphragm actually create that inhale from the mm -hmm. bottom instead of the top. Where do we usually pull from? Anterior shoulder, pecs, scalenes, upper traps, right? And we're pulling the rib cage up to compensate for lack of diaphragm movement. So that's a ton of information that I just threw out at you. <laughs> but the good news is that I on this and I do hands-on yeah. um, presentations on this all over the country all year long and if people go to my website and they go to the attend page they'll find um, all the information about where I'll be next and talking about this but also I'm creating an online webinar on right. this and I have a 30-day uh, breathe better to move better program that's also on my website and I hate to seem like I'm trying to sell people stuff because that's, it's not about that I just I want to educate people yeah, and I'm sure. I'm constantly doing stuff on social media where we take breathing breaks and I, I tell people how to mobilize their ribs and, um, because it's breathing, guys. It's not rocket science, but right. some people are making it sound way more complex than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, if you choose to use your breathing like the Wim Hof method and you want to walk around in your underwear in, you know, the, the, the snow, Go for it. That's yeah. great. But that's not my wheelhouse. My sure. wheelhouse, I want you to have better posture. I want you to move better. And I want you to feel better. I want you to have less pain. And I want you to sleep better. And that's that's the power of training your breathing. Yeah. So, boom. That's it. Boom. I love it. I, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's, so, it's so necessary. And, and uh, it's funny that you said that because um, the why doesn't everyone know this sort of question propels a lot of the work that we do at the good athlete project. So like, for example, we all recognize like breathing is absolutely essential. We recognize it. We're never taught how to do it. We're never, never taught like uh, what could potentially go wrong, how we could be enhanced in all the variety of ways that you talk about. Um, similarly, um, what about sleep? You know, if we breathe and sleep and those are two things that are like absolutes in our lives, we don't learn a ton uh, regarding how to do either of those very well. Uh, so yeah, it's the same thing. And even, and then you go only one slight step further into exercise. That's actually a little bit, a very brief, uh, bit of my background is I did a lot of study. Uh, I said human development in, in psychology focused on cognitive neuroscience. And I'm very interested in the intersection between, um, essentially movement and neurological performance. So how can the way we move enhance our cognitive abilities? Uh, we call it the learner state when we apply it to schools and other situations. Exercise is one of the best ways to do that. And in a lot of our studies, I've told Alex this and, and people who have seen me present have seen it, but like we had, we had notes, we had write-ins from, from some of our early surveys and studies. And that was one of the things that like, it almost chokes me up when I, when I see it 
we had a young a young student say, why doesn't everyone already know this? We, um, one of our advisors, Carrie Sampson Moore, she's uh, director of physical education at MIT. She, uh, she said, um, they were having conversation on it. Actually, John Rady, who might be a familiar name. I don't know. Wrote the book spark. Mm, I've heard of the book, but I'm gonna, no, I'm going to send you I'm a copy. Gonna... I'm going to send you a copy okay. of it. Don't feel, I mean, you're super busy. Don't feel obliged, but I'll send it to you. Um, there, there's a junior at MIT who stands up after the talk and goes, Listen, I am 21, 22 at the time. Um, I've been an academic my entire life. How did I not know this the whole time? How was this hidden from me? So I think the work you're doing is incredible. Uh, it does seem to be, would you agree that there is kind of a, a refreshing push toward the, these sorts of training methods? Um, have you seen that recently? Breathing, mindfulness, uh, sleep has made a big splash recently. Yes. Absolutely. And, and I think we're headed in the right direction. I think we just all hopefully can start to intersect and get on the same page um, and make sure that what is being taught um, is, is accurate and helpful. Because like I said, there are some people who are well-intentioned and, and unfortunately there's, um, there's this belief that yoga instructors know how to teach breathing. And as, as someone who started my career in pro sports as a yoga instructor, mm -hmm. I can tell you that I had no idea that, that yeah. it's, it's all taught, like, just conceptually. It's not, you know, it's breathe into your belly like it's a big mm -hmm. bowl. And, like, I didn't know. I probably couldn't have drawn where the attachments are for my diaphragm. I didn't know that. I didn't. I had to, I had to learn that stuff. I, I I've taken eight PRI courses and I've done a, a ton of research um, and I'm constantly continually learning as much as I can, but there's not a ton of research out there. It's, it's um, thankfully emerging um, and there are more people who are looking into it, but don't assume when it comes to breathing, even though again, it's not rocket science, not everyone understands the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. So it's really ribs diaphragm and lungs yep. if if you understand rib kinematics like how ribs can move if you look at diaphragm function then it and if someone isn't kind of breaking that down then they don't necessarily know right. about how it works you know i think um yeah no I, absolutely and, and one um one thing that jumps out a term we use in consultation and meeting with students and, and um, administrators etc is does your behavior match your goal? Uh, and I say that because I don't, my experience with breathing prior to like, um, I don't know, probably two years ago, uh, was all belly breathing. And I would say that like, I still enlist belly breathing, but not for performance enhancement, right? I think like, uh, that's like you mentioned with, um, yoga pro deeply rooted in more of like a mindfulness practice and, and just focusing mm -hmm. on your, your physiology. Uh, but like you said, if, you, if your goal is to be more structurally sound and enhance performance, feel better, all those things, then that just won't, that won't cut it. it it's, it's true. I mean, I, I still think there are benefits um, to, to uh, I, I don't think I've ever said that. I don't think I can. I, I, <laughs> I, my tongue is not going to let me say yeah. that there are benefits to belly breathing. But again, it's well-intentioned and yeah. you can realize benefits. But once you understand the true anatomy and biomechanics, then you can get those same benefits and more by doing it properly because yeah. then your body 
is, is going to take on that functional pattern because you're training a functional right. pattern and you'll be able to breathe more deeply and get more out of it and be able to initiate a parasympathetic response when you, when you want to yep. without having to do that belly breathing thing. But can we move on from belly breathing? You um, name the podcast. Had- well, I hate puppies. Colon, oh, no. Belly breathing. Uh, oh no! no I'm um, just yeah, binge watch um, Game of Thrones. Yeah, that we've covered a lot of really great, helpful things. But you had, <laughs> I have these questions that you gave they're me. And they're wonderful. So awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, let's so, let's let's jump into the questions. This is all. Listen, if we want to take out the "I hate puppies" part, we can talk to Coach Nadal and he can adjust. Uh, but I think people will identify with it. Uh, oh, so here, if so, you ever heard me on any other podcast, it's I've said so many things that can't be taken back. It's fine. It, there, it's out in the world. Up. Fair enough. Yes. Fair enough. Uh, uh, all right. Well, we're gonna we will bounce around the questions just a little bit. Um, one thing is kind of occurring to me. We talk about breathing or mindfulness um, in certain spheres. Uh, sometimes a certain caliber of af- athlete, maybe a professional hockey player, say might be semi-resistant at first. So I don't know if that aligns with one of these questions uh, referring to essentially challenges within the profession. But uh, mm-hmm. first, I'm, I'm gonna ask that first. Have people been, how do people receive this uh, when you first walk in the door? Are they are they receptive to the methods because they're at this point so proven out or is there still sort of a bit of hesitation in there? There can be hesitation, um, but I've, I've um, I use parlor tricks to be able to get buy-in because I've worked with athletes long enough now that I know that you need to speak the universal language of show them immediately how this is going to benefit them or they're not going to pay attention. And um, so, uh, and this was something that I learned from um, Mike Cantrell, one of the instructors at PRI. And, and I want to be clear as much as I've learned a ton from PRI, what I actually do and how I apply what I've, learn from them and all of the other research that I've done, it's not PRI. I don't do PRI exercises because if you thought that I did and then you looked at what I'm doing, you'd think I was doing PRI exercises wrong. Hmm. But I've I've learned working in professional sports and in all the ways that I need to integrate this, that I've broken it down to the lowest common denominator to be able to get compliance because a lot of the PRI hmm. exercises are very complex um, and if you have trouble understanding them and you have to refer to a manual to be able to then teach them to your athletes, they can't, they're not going to be able to do their homework. Right. right. But if it's just breathing and I figured out an easy way to do it and I have this thing I called a, a breathing bridge um, that you do on the floor, you only need a yoga block and a towel and people do it and it's not rocket science. I don't have them do asymmetrical things or anything because as much as sometimes these patterns are very much asymmetrical because the diaphragm has an asymmetrical attachment, um, has a longer, thicker attachment to your lumbar spine by up to two vertebrae. Hmm. So there can be some asymmetries going on and and you want to clean them up. But what I've found over the past couple of years um, doing it this lowest common denominator way is that actually those asymmetries will clean themselves up when you train breathing pattern to be functional without even really addressing them. Then once, once you get an athlete to be compliant and actually do them, um, then you can see if there's something else that you need to address. 
But I found that that's the easier way to do it rather than being like, oh, wow, you know, you have a rotated pelvis. So we're going to put your feet up on a wall, but one foot's going to be up two inches in the, because I used to do that in the beginning. And then I come in to see the client a week later and they'd be like, look, I was doing the exercises and they had the opposite foot up two inches, which means they were only feeding into the bad, like just, it just was a a shit show. But, um, so I, I clean that up. But I want to go back to the parlor tricks because the buy-in is if I grab, like, we'll take um, the Houston Texans. When I was mm-hmm. down there, I had this massive group of guys. And um, I grabbed uh, one of the quarterbacks, and I brought him up, and I said, okay, I'm going to show him how to do this breathing exercise, and you're going to watch me teach him, and then we're all going to do it together. That way mm-hmm. you get to see how it, how it works. First, I'll test his internal shoulder rotation on his throwing arm. And then we'll do a set of five breaths. Mm-hmm. I'll get his ribs to move. I'm going to shut off all of those those muscles in his anterior shoulder, his pecs, his neck, his upper traps, all those muscles that he's been using to compensate and breathe. And then we're going to retest his shoulder, internal shoulder rotation. This is going to take about 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. So I do it. They all see his internal shoulder rotation. And when I say that I test it, I'm basically, I just show them. I'm not measuring it. They can see it. He can feel it too because there's also this, you feel it. It goes from clunky to fluid. But in some cases, I can give them 30 degrees with five breaths done the right way. And everybody sees it happen. And they see the look on their quarterback's face. And they're all like, show me how to breathe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then what I have to make very clear is, as soon as he gets up and walks away to walk back to his mat, he's lost what I just showed him. That was a parlor trick. He's got to train that now every day over the course of the next two weeks, just like any other corrective movement pattern. You've got to train. You don't own it right out of the gate. Right. right? But after a couple of weeks of doing that one or two times a day, he's going to own that pattern. So he'll own that extra 30 degrees of internal shoulder rotation. Mm. So that's how I get by. And I can do the same thing with internal hip rotation. I can change your internal hip rotation with those same kind different exercise, but same thing, five breaths. Yeah. And when I do that with a hockey goalie or um, a, a catcher, uh, an MLB catcher, they're like well, one of the catchers actually called it a drop the mic moment. I <laughs> when I showed him how to get better internal hip rotation, he's like, "How'd you do it? Like how?" And I'm yeah. like, "No, you did it. You know, you just changed your breathing." Yeah. So it's pretty crazy, but that's that's it. So. I love um, Ryan uh, Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way. And that wasn't even a book that I had for the answer, but yeah. um, your question. But I yeah. love that book because in terms of anything that I've come up against, I've had to figure out the workaround. So how do you get buy-in when you have a big group of guys? How do I get buy-in when I have you know, a group of 60 um minor league players and 30 of them are Latin and have no idea what I'm saying. And also there's a cultural thing with a woman coach. They don't want to pay attention. I grab one of their pitchers and who doesn't even speak English. We do that same test. And then he's able to have more internal um, shoulder rotation. And then he speaks in his language to all of them. And then everybody's working on their breathing. Right. So that's that's how it works. Um, But if I didn't have the obstacle, I wouldn't have figured out the way. So that um that is yeah are we writing that down that is so if i didn't have the obstacle i wouldn't have figured out the way i love that and i I love how you said um everything you've been up up against you have to create a workaround that's what what a very real truth that is and i hope everyone thinks that like um 
the anchor is is this the, the way that we want or the place we want to get to. Um, but the way that we get there, there's undoubtedly obstacles along that way. Improv is the only way. And what's the what's Scott Caulfield's son? The best the best adjust or the best adapt or, or something like that. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, very cool. You do it. Um, so if that's not it, because you've obviously found a workaround to uh, engagement with high level athletes, uh, what would you say the biggest challenge you have faced might be then professionally or otherwise? And how have you worked around that to get where you are? Uh, ooh, okay. Well, um, we'll have to do the cliff notes version of this. Cause the biggest challenge yeah. in my life was I, I grew up very poor. Um, and, uh, at, Summer Strong was actually the first time in public that I'd ever done a talk that was kind of based on my life story and, and how that all evolved. But I grew up really poor um, and I was a teenage mother. Uh, the first time I moved out of my house, and I used the term house loosely, was when I was 14. But then I moved out for good when I was 16. Um, and I have a 28 year old daughter. She's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but we kind of grew up together uh, the way that that worked. But Growing up poor and being a teenage mother and um, and having to work and take care of a child and um, and pretty much you know being written off initially like I I, I almost didn't graduate high school uh, because I was supposed to be in this teenage uh, teenage parent program that they had set up. Um, and, and then the day before my senior year, they called me and said, oh, we're sorry, there was a mix-up. We don't have a space for you. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? I'm living in an apartment. I'm working part-time. I don't, like, I don't have money for childcare. I thought I was going to be able to be in this program to be able to finish high school. So um, I, uh, I freaked out because that's my future. And I, I thought I'd seen too many people from the really impoverished town that I lived in, like, who dropped out of school in the eighth grade and you know they were working at a there was a plastics factory that was nearby that every everybody either worked at they called it the rat farm which was a lab for doing testing animal testing which i'm absolutely against by the way i might not yeah. like puppies but i don't <laughs> think anybody should test on them um and i want to make it very clear i love dogs yes. just not puppies and I, I was faced with this, you know, if I didn't graduate from high school, then I could see how my life was going to turn out. I had to make sure that that happened. So I started calling every member of the school board because um, back then there were phone books. You'd actually right. look through and you called them up on like a rotary dial phone, phone and begging them to make this happen. And I wasn't getting anywhere. And, and so I called the... Um, called uh well i called a lawyer actually I, I sorry i have to think back to this i called a lawyer and i had no money and i said to him I, you know i have no money um he was the his last name was connor john connor like from terminator yeah. um and uh i don't think that movie was out yet then but i i called him and i said this is the situation and you know, I'm about to lose my chance at a decent life. Like, I, I don't know what to do. I, I mean, I, I don't have money to pay you, but I'll pay you back. Can you help me make this happen so I don't miss this opportunity? And I don't know what he did, but um, he, he uh, did manage to make it so that I could keep going to school. And the school paid for child care for me for the first half. The second half, I was able to be in this teenage yeah. parent program. Um, but I, he told me to go to school the first day 
and bring my daughter with me. He said, refuse to leave the property. And I did. And they tried to throw me off the property. And then I said, I will call the news stations. And how will that look? I mean, it was, it was, um, it was kind of brazen. And I, and you know, as I look back, I have mixed feelings because, you know, I made the mistake and I hate to call it a mistake because my daughter's amazing, but you know, being pregnant at 16, it wasn't the school's responsibility. Hmm. But what had happened was they did tell me that I was going to be in this program and then right. they pulled the rug out from under me at the last minute. And then they, they didn't offer me any other opportunity or any other advice or anything. It was just like, yeah, sorry, <laughs> you know? Jeez. And um, also they never even told me about the SATs. I didn't know what the SATs were. Oh, I, um, it, it, I, I just knew it was a test I had to pay for and I couldn't afford it. Right. So it wasn't until after I graduated and um, I knew I couldn't go to college right away because I had to figure out a plan. Uh, but then I realized I had to take this, these SATs. It was crazy. But in the end, I ended up, um, I went to a community college for a year and I, um, I had a 4-0. Um, and then I tested out of a whole bunch of other classes because I had early in life, I had taught myself to speed read. And so I tested out of all of, I did these things called cleft tests. And I tested out of like English 101 and psych 101 and sociology 101. And um, almost a year's worth of, of classes. After this year at community college and taking my SATs, I uh, applied to Tufts, Harvard, and Brandeis. And um, Harvard wouldn't accept my credits from the community college. I would have had to go there for an entire four, or the testing out. I'd have to go there for an entire four years. Yeah. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't afford to lose that time, even if I had a full scholarship. Yeah. Tufts offered me a full scholarship and they were willing to accept all my credits. And Brandeis offered me a full scholarship. They were willing to accept all my credits and they would pay for health insurance for both me and my daughter. Wow. So, but I wanted to go to Tufts. So I just took the deal from Brandeis and I went back to Tufts and I said, well, would you match this? And they said, yes. And wow. so, and I don't know if people know that you can kind of pit one school against the other. I don't, I did I mean, the worst they could say was no. And right. that was always my motto. My motto was the answer to every unasked question is already no. So why not ask? Right? Totally. Absolutely. I, so, we, we, that's what I, not to cut you off. We, we literally, we just finished a uh, staff meeting 30 minutes ago, uh, an hour ago, perhaps. Um, and we were like, yeses are great. Nos are fine maybes are unacceptable you know what i mean we we have to like get out there and, and find answers at least you might as well ask i totally agree i love that right. mindset. Yeah. yeah and um so so yeah i asked and i received and it was awesome i got to go to tufts and and so um i i think that that I, the the circumstances that i grew up in i could have let them define me mm -hmm. or i could let them reveal what my true character was. And I'm not saying that I came out of this on the other side and things were perfect and I was great. I made a whole lot of mistakes and there were a lot of times when I had to kind of, you know, I came up against moral challenges and I, there was a lot of learning involved. Sure. But on the other end of that, I learned a lot about gratitude and the whole thing where the obstacle is the way and, and um, my favorite book of all time is man's search for meaning mm -hmm. because Victor Frankel. you can, yes, Victor Frankel, because you can look at your life and say, Oh, my life has been really hard. Um, woe is me. Uh, it, 
or you can look at this man and the life that he went through and the experiences that he went through in the concentration camp and, and the attitude that he took that, that enabled him to survive and not only survive, but come out on the other end and really thrive yeah. and, and be a better person and a whole human and have a purpose in life. And, and, um, I, I read that at the first time in community college and it really brought together for me because I had still spent a lot of time. Woe is me. You know, yeah. I can't believe that I had to grow up that way. And it was pretty horrible. A lot. There were a lot of reasons why I had to leave the house that I was in. And, and, and so I had a lot of scars and I was constantly licking my wounds until I read that book. And I thought, you know what, the, I, I have a purpose and, and all of those things, created the person that I am and I now I have to choose what to do with that mm -hmm. and and so it's truly had a positive influence on on how I've ended up and how I look at things and how much compassion I can have for other people having um having grown up that way so it was the biggest challenge but in a lot of respects I wouldn't change it you know right that's it's so you're so right, and it's refreshing to hear. Have you ever heard uh, the theoretical the equation E plus R equals O? Uh, it's no. Essentially, it's it's event plus response equals outcome, um, and the, and how they are essentially equally weighted in a lot of cases. Um, it's not necessarily uh, the circumstances one is in. Although, listen, I don't, we could. I want to distinguish that. Like, we are not talking about. Um, equity on the grand, in the grand scheme of things. But hypothetically, um, the event happens, your experience happens, but how you perceive it, how you interact with it, that is what determines the outcome so frequently. And that's essentially unavoidable. Um, that's a really inspiring story. So Thanks. it's very cool. Were you able to, given I'm sure there were time constraints that most people don't have to deal with, uh, how were you able to stay active, athletic? What sort of sports did you play? What did your life look like outside of uh, being a young mother and going to school at one of the elite places on earth? Um, well, so, well, you know, I was pregnant in high school, so that kind of makes it hard to play sports. That's right. But I had done gymnastics um, from the age of four, and when I was in junior high school, um, I made the varsity gymnastics team. For oh. two years, I was able to be on the varsity gymnastics team, so that was that was awesome. Um, and then uh, we had moved to this other school, and they didn't even have a gymnastics team. So even before I was pregnant, I I, I missed that opportunity. But I always I always relished that that time being able to play on a team and um and I missed gymnastics and that's what ultimately drew me to to yoga so the the quick other part of that story is um I went to Tufts and uh I I studied sociology and marketing and I interned at a PR firm and um and when I left and this is remember I told you I came up against some moral challenges here and there um I still at that point kind of thought that the opposite of the unhappiness that I had um, growing up, I equated that with being poor. So I thought the opposite was being rich, right? Having all this money. Um, and, and as much as I'd read Viktor Frankl's book and I was starting to get it, I didn't completely get it because mm -hmm. I still was 
dead set on, I was going to raise my children in the opposite experience that I had. So I needed to have this giant house. Anyway, so in PR, I, um, I was, I was doing this internship. And then when I graduated, I ended up, here's the moral dilemma. They hadn't had me sign a non-compete and I was really good at my job. And I decided to open my own firm and take their largest client with me. So yeah, that I do regret that very much. Um, but at the time I didn't because I, I came out of college and I started my own firm and I was making, you know, six figures. And within a couple of years, um, I ended up, um, going to work for them and became their North American director of PR and marketing. And I traveled all over and, um, I bought a million dollar house and I drove my BMWs and I had gotten married. My um, ex-husband had a really great job and we had, I literally had a picket fence, um, and even a wall, a big stone wall around this massive house that I would never want a house like this again, but I had the big chandelier and I had all of the things that were the antithesis. You could, you could fit like the 18 different trailers that I'd lived in in my youth in this house that I lived in. And, and I was very proud of that until I realized how shallow and empty and devoid of anything real that actually was. And I had nannies raising my kids as I was traveling all over the country for this job that I had. Um, and it was yoga that seemed like kind of like adult gymnastics and uh, that I went into a yoga class at a spa in Miami because I would always stay at the nicest hotels when I was traveling for work and we had an office in Miami. And so I was at, um, I was at this hotel and I saw a yoga class at the spa and I went to it and there literally was a guy in like a speedo with a man bun. It was kind of crazy. The stereotypical sort of thing. I'm pretty sure he adjusted me and like downward dog from behind in the weird creepy way. But (laughs) when I, yeah, when I, when I lied down on the mat though, at the end um, for what they call Shavasana, this final relaxation Mm -hmm. um, was just instructed to breathe, not with, actual instructions just right. to breathe though right. it was something that I'd never been instructed to do before and suddenly it was like I could let everything go hmm. for just those few moments and that's all I could handle was just a few moments and yeah. then there was just this real part of me that was coming out and I was very attracted to that so as much as I liked the movement because it seemed like adult gymnastics yeah. it was it was this breathing at the end that started to connect me with wait a minute, this is who I really am. And everything that I've built is this facade of this life and this Mm. pinnacle of success. It's not real. And then I ran into someone who I ended up having drinks and told them some of this story that I'm telling you now. And they were like, Oh my gosh, I have to introduce you to my friend. She's a literary agent for like Jack Welch, the CEO of GE and she's good mm-hmm. and she's gonna want you to write a book and I had this meeting at Four Seasons and she's telling me I'm gonna be on Oprah and we're gonna write this book and we're, and but the the thing that she said to me that made me end up changing my entire life and by the way not writing that book was she said and we're your book is essentially going to be a roadmap for people who think that they can't overcome their circumstances to be able to do it like you did and then um, live a life like yours that's happy and fulfilled and and i'm sitting there going holy crap mine isn't i don't want anybody to be like me like here i've done all of this stuff i've been in this race 
to get a run away from my past to create this life that's not even real. So it was right after that, that I just started to take apart that life. And it, it also involved getting divorced because I got married because again, it was part of the like the trophy husband I guess you know like it's part of the whole thing I wasn't I I wasn't doing anything for the right reasons Mm. and I started to look more at yoga I started to look at gray cook and movement and um and because it looked like he was then taking yoga and and making it more biomechanically sound and applying Mm. it to movement patterns and using it as corrective exercise and I loved sports I was well I didn't grow up in Boston but I was in Boston then and um and I was in love with the Red Sox at that point I'm sorry here as I sit the Blue Jays um but but um I started to to look at how to apply it to sports and um I've talked about how that all came to be on other podcasts and um and I, I don't i I know that I've been kind of lengthy here in the story, but um, it, anyway, it, then it all evolved into this. But I ended up going, I got divorced, I went bankrupt, I, um, like I, I sold pretty much everything I had to, um, to create this new business. And in the beginning, I was making like no money, like right. negative money, you know? <laughs> right. Um, but I loved what I was doing. I loved what I was doing. And even when I got to that point where I was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. Here I am back to being poor, but I was so much happier than I'd ever been. So I realized that the money and the happiness thing, nah, they, they're not really related. Not at all. That's so So. incredible, man. I hope people listen hard to this because that's such a real thing. People aim, like you said, people are aiming for the, the, metaphorical picket fence and the money because they think it's going to bring them happiness. There's no other reason. We've just, we've all been kind of sold that dream um, that, you know, the unifying force behind all of us is that we're seeking some sort of happiness and, and uh, that other thing wasn't bringing it. That's really cool. And I also got to say, like, I hope people take that, um, the message of kind of being bankrupt and, and spending money to fulfill your, your passion and purpose, that that might be something that people have to do. It's, it's, it's incredible. In fact, this was part of our, our uh, staff development conversation recently too. Um, like the entitlement, we're in such an entitlement age and, and I don't mean to be a back in my day type of person, but I will say this, um, we've done a, a bunch of these podcast interviews now and one unifying factor between people who made it to the elite levels of their field, and I would certainly count you as, as that person in your field, um, is like that at first they were willing to sort of slog it out, that they did it because there was some kind of very authentic drive to do it because they were getting something from it that could, that wasn't tangible, that wasn't even maybe quantifiable necessarily, uh, but eventually the quantifiable levels of success came. They were sort of attracted to that natural drive. So I think it's an important message for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you. I think um, – we might, a lot of these questions we sent you are actually part of Coach Nadalna's lightning round. Uh, so I don't know if you okay. are ready to uh, to talk about your first album, concert, etc. But I know that uh, the uh, the tens of viewers or listeners that we have are eager for this moment. So, Oh, goodness. Well, are you going to ask me the number two on the Kind Coaches nomination? Because I have, I have someone I definitely want to nominate. We, we, is that on? we, it is, but let's go ahead and let's make that the first one before we go lightning round, no sound effects yet. Uh, 
Can you? Um, so yeah, we came up with this kind coaches concept a while back. Uh, you know, our, our Instagram and Twitter handle, it's coach for kindness. And people are like, um, you know, people are sometimes skeptical about that. We're working with a professional linebacker or fullback. It's like coach for kindness. Like what's the deal there? And we're like, like why they're like, why do you call it coach for kindness? We're like, why the hell not? Like enough people are coaching for toughness or, or whatever it might be. And that's part of our, everything that we do too. Um, but, but we're trying to aim at the things that are missing. So, um, we, we believe that like, you have to be tough to get through the tough times in your life. And if you want great times, uh, you have to be kind. Like kindness helps you essentially create the be- some of the best moments in life. Um, Absolutely. And that's, yeah. So, and, that, and that's where the, um, the kind coaches push came from as well. Uh, we want to identify people, and I'm going to ask for your nomination in a moment, who are able to balance uh, toughness and, and competitive and, you know, with being kind and caring and nurturing in, in all the appropriate ways. And those things enhance each other. But uh, who was that in your life, if you had to pick one or maybe even a couple? Okay. Well, a couple, and because your question 15 about someone to publicly thank, I'll come back to him. But sure. I, my husband, Donovan, yep. is definitely a kind coach and, um, and had a huge influence on my life. But um, we'll get back to him. But uh, Craig Fitzgerald who is currently um, the University of Tennessee uh, strength coach, but he was at the Houston Texans um, when I worked with them. And Craig, um, he was at Harvard and he was at Penn State. And when and what really showed me what kind of coach Craig is, is um, also working with Sean Hayes, who's the strength coach for the WWE. Hmm. Sean was a football player at Harvard who, um, where, when Craig was his strength coach and, um, and he's the one who convinced Sean that he should also be a strength coach. And so he took him to Penn state with him and, and you can just tell by the people who work under Craig and then the type of coach that Sean Hayes is now over at the WWE and how he coaches those guys. And, you know, he, it, he's like a maestro with all of the people who come in because the WWE at this point, the, where they're recruiting people from, it's like a circus. Mm-hmm. And so he has people who speak all these different languages, but he can manage them and the way that he does that comes from Craig, everything that I saw in Craig. And then anybody who's ever worked for Craig or been coached by Craig, like Nick Novak, I brought him up, the kicker um, in the NFL, like he loves him. When I went to go work with the, the Texans, um, I stayed at Craig's house with his family wow. and, um, and Nick came over for dinner and other coaches came over for dinner. And then we played a game of horse outside and, like that is the kind of atmosphere um, that that just uh, like that Craig creates, and and the and good people just gravitate towards that, and then they follow him. And then when he is tough, they take that to heart, and they understand, you know, like they don't. It's it's not like oh he's being a jerk. It's like no, you know, he's passionate about what he does, and he cares about us. Yeah. And when a coach shows you how much they care, mm-hmm. you'll follow them anywhere. Just like Sean followed him from Harvard to Penn State. And then he also went to the Houston Texans with him before getting the job at the WWE. So when you have a, a strength coach like that, 
where people are following him, yeah. you, you just know that that's somebody special. So if you don't know Craig, you, you should you should find a way to, to meet him. I mean, yeah. I'd be happy to introduce you. Yeah. Oh, you should have him on. He should come on. Yeah. I mean, that, that's perfect. There you go. I think that's yeah. perfect. And that's exactly right. And there, uh, probably everyone has heard the, uh, the old adage, like people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it, it almost sounds like grandmother wisdom, no offense to grandmothers, but um, it, it's like, it, it's just the absolute truth. You can only push as hard as you pull. And the, and the pull in this state is like people gravitating towards you because of your um, authenticity, your kindness, the way that you care and, and make people feel. So those, yeah. are great, those are great nominations. Should we jump to question 15? I'd like to, if that's sure. okay. Uh, if you had to pub- publicly thank one person, who would that be? Uh, well, it would have to be my husband. Yes. Um, I, I already thanked KB, Kevin Barr, for introducing me to my husband. But, um, but yeah, Donovan, it's, he's very much like the way that I descri- described Craig. Um, Donovan is head of strength and conditioning here at, at the Blue Jays. And mm-hmm. so all of the strength coaches, like the major league strength coach, assistant major league strength coach, and all of the minor league strength coaches are below him. Yeah. And he's hired most of them and brought them up and he's always constantly trying to promote people and promote people and promote people because that's what he's about. He's about lifting other people up. He, that man has no ego. Like it's incredible. And I personally have become a better person. Remember I said that, you know, having grown up the way that I did, um, and anyone who knows anything about and has studied psychology and, and, um, and I've studied it to kind of understand some of the things that I, I've wrestled with. You create this foundation when you're a child, you know, of, of your perspective on the world and, and basically your set of morals. And some of that I had to develop later on because I didn't get that foundation. And it was always looking for, I didn't have, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have someone like that in my life. And so I'd like to say that I was a decent person when I met my husband, but I can tell you for sure that I'm a way better person now because I always watch his example. And I, he seriously is like my moral compass because there, anytime I feel like, is this the right decision? What would Donovan do? Like, seriously, what would Donovan do? Um, He, and he, he does what he needs to do. And I swear he always does the right thing. He always does the right thing. He does the right thing for people. Um, he puts other people first. He, I pretty much in love with this man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, yeah, but, um, don't tell him, don't worry. Uh, but anyway, he, uh, he doesn't like puppies either. So it's all good. (laughs) There it is. There's yeah. the connection. No, he sounds incredible, truly. Um, and people yeah. can't see your face lighting up right now uh, if they're listening to podcasts, but it absolutely is. So very cool. I love it. Well, they just, they can see us together in the garage gym, all those things I post on That's Instagram. Right. That is true. Our workouts in the garage gym. And we take dance breaks. And, uh, That's right. And uh, he sings 80s karaoke to me. It's really something magical. Quite a talent. <laughs> Quite a talent. Uh, and he's a strong dude, too. I've, I've seen some of those um, garage posts for sure. That's at your yeah, your guys' place, obviously? Yeah. 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 That's really cool. Yeah. That's a cool thing to be able to share also. Um, 
All right, I think Alex, are you up? Are you ready? I think I'm. I think I'm up. Yeah. I think are you, you're sitting down still? I hope. I'm ready. Okay. I am. <laughs> All right. All right. The uh, just a heads up. I I try and write some as we go along, so they're not all on the sheet. I saw that you had notes earlier prepared, um, but I, I wrote some of my own. No, that's all okay. right. I'm so, ready. Uh, oh. What was the What was the first job you ever had? Um, I worked in a bakery when I was 14. What was the first concert you ever went to? Willie Nelson. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even like country. It's just these. I was five. You were five <laughs> yeah. years old? Yeah. I was what five what, years what old. was the first one you went to uh, that it was your decision? Yeah. Oh, uh, that it was my decision. I want to say Def Leppard. Oh, good answer. Heck yeah. I like that. Yeah. Love it. Uh, who would play you in a movie about your life? Oh, that's easy. Drew Barrymore. Um, because we have the same birthday. And she also has, we both have that crooked smile. And we talk mostly out of one side of our face. Um, and she also, I just, I don't know. I resonate with her. She's really kind of quirky and, and, and happy though, but she's had a pretty rough start, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So her definitely. I like that. Um, what game of Thrones character do you relate to most and why? Oh, gee. Uh, who do, um, Oh, Mother of Dragons. I was Mother of Dragons for Halloween um, (laughs) because at that point I had three rescue dogs. And so Uh, I dressed them all up as dragons and I had the whole Mother of Dragons outfit. But you guys don't even know what that means. I actually do know that reference. That I do. All right. Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. I know know most of it. Yeah, it's in commercials and stuff. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) What would constitute a successful day for you? Um, one where that I wake up breathing. Yeah. There it it's is. pretty successful, right? I'm alive. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's it. Breathing correctly. Breathing um, well, <laughs> similar to that, what is one habit or one daily activity that you do that you feel makes you more successful? Um, oh, I'm going to have to give you two because I do the, cause we've talked about breathing so much. I want to make sure people know that there's more to me than just the breathing. Although that's a big thing. Yep. But um, I, I make sure that I take five breaths before I get out of bed. And like five breaths where that's what I'm focused on. I just take five breaths. And sometimes if I kind of wake up and I feel like, you know, how you wake up sometimes and it, you're just a little off. Sometimes yep. I take 20 breaths, you know. And mm-hmm. so that's my meditation. Um, and it really is mindfulness meditation. But I'm a huge proponent of walking every day. And and I, I don't – I inadvertently started this walk every damn day um hashtag campaign in my instagram stories and so i repost other people's when they they tag me in their walking stories and um but i walk every day and i have i've been doing that for like 11 years around our neighborhood or if i'm traveling i make sure that i walk even if it's around the conference center or my husband hates it but i love to do the stairs in the hotel Mm -hmm. Uh, but i I think that walking is the most underrated, fat-burning, corrective, mind-body exercise we can do. Like, it's it's so impactful for so many reasons, especially if we can put our phones down. Yes. Um, except you have to do that story for me so I can ta- and tag me so, so I can. One brief moment within the walk. That's right. I got you tonight. Yeah. I'm going to tag you tonight. Okay. All right. I, um, walk I gotta, every, every damn day. Every damn day. I got to put you in touch with um, – a very good friend of mine, 
uh, friend of the project and future podcast guest. His name is Eric Torres. Uh, he's he and I went to grad school together. He's now finishing up a PhD at Harvard, and uh, he's doing he's got this thing that he led when we were in a master's program together uh, called Walking Talks, and it goes way back to just like the ancient philosophers of like like the the just very real back on this earth value of walking around with another person. Um, talking through ideas, basic philosophy, not referencing notes, not cataloging it for any particular reason, just experiencing the world in that way. So, um, yeah, he's an interesting guy. I'm sure he'd love to hear that. So, Oh, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Hook us up. Definitely. That's the end of the lightning round. That's what I, I love it. Uh, well, before, before we close, is there anything that you want to share with people that we weren't able to get to or any, any cool projects that you're working on that are coming up? Oh, yeah. All right. You know what? Um, your question number nine was if you had 30 minutes to work out and access any equipment you need, what would yeah. you do? I have a new piece of equipment coming out. Okay. Uh, it's called the Mobility Maker Bench. Love it. And, um, and you'll be able to do so much with that. And I had the prototype in my garage, um, but it's it's being worked on right now to, sure. um, to get it ready to go out so I, I don't have it anymore and i miss it because i could work entire training sessions around it mobility um, maker bench it's called yeah Very yeah cool. and, and i can't really released? say much else about it but sure it it's going to be ready before the end of the year great very cool yeah that's a great sure. that's a great answer to that question um i love it well listen uh you're you're welcome back anytime for sure because this like this is this is such necessary work and that's why we were so intrigued by you and all the and, and following you and listening to your message uh because it's the one that people should hear and when you talk we've referenced instagram and and what people are putting into the world a few times um maxing out deadlift every third day might get you like clicks and likes and stuff like this but this is what people athletes and otherwise you know the the general population we all need to be listening closer um to this sort of work and to, to your message so thanks for putting it all in the world truly we're grateful oh thank you guys so much that that means a ton and and back at you for all the work that you're doing like oh. everything i i was i looked all over your website and saw all the great things you're doing and the messages um it this is so needed in sports oh. it's so needed so I, I i'm really that. glad to have met you yeah, I, I feel the same way. So, well, and, and hopefully we'll cross paths um, in real life sometime in the near future. That would be great. Awesome. Well, have a wonderful day and we'll be in touch. Okay, great. Thanks. Bye. This episode brought to you by Hand Armor Chalk, the official chalk of USA Weightlifting. They are also the official sponsor of the Illinois High School Powerlifting Association, a partner organization overseen by the Good Athlete Project. We would not support a product we didn't believe in. Check them out at Hand Armor Chalk on Twitter and Instagram.